From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, April 24th. I'm Marco Werman. The net flow of people migrating from Mexico to the U.S. comes to a virtual standstill. The economy is one factor. Another is falling birth rates. Even if things change, the U.S. economy came back, there's not as many Mexicans to migrate to the U.S. as there was 20 years ago. Also, why dry cleaning in Moscow requires lots of patience. The woman behind the counter starts examining your clothes with the diligence of a doctor devoted to internal medicine. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontlines, Money, Power, and Wall Street, the origins of the financial crisis, and the drama on Wall Street and in Washington to contain the meltdown and save the economy. Tonight at 9, 8 Central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The net flow of immigrants from Mexico to the United States has stopped. That's according to a new report by the Pew Hispanic Center. The report suggests that more Mexican-born people may now be leaving the U.S. than arriving. Either way, this means the end of the largest and most sustained immigration trend in American history. This new reality also comes at an interesting time in the national immigration debate. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments tomorrow over the Arizona law designed to force illegal immigrants, mostly from Mexico, to leave. Jeff Passell is a senior demographer with the Pew Hispanic Center and one of the report's authors. Uh, Jeff, first of all, what is behind this decline in immigration from Mexico? Well, there's uh, three broad factors that appear to be related, and they're all pushing in the same direction. The first was the Great Recession, and even a little bit before with the bust in housing construction, the demand for Mexican immigrant labor uh, fell and and the flows started falling. We've seen also a stepped-up level of enforcement against undocumented immigration. So uh, the enforcement has driven up the cost of, of getting into the United States. It's more dangerous in Mexico and on the U.S. side. And the enforcement has pushed people out into more remote areas so that it's harder for them to get in. Uh, So you couple all of that with the economic conditions. It's not surprising then that a lot fewer Mexicans have tried to come to the U.S. Given that more than half of Mexican-born residents living in the United States are here illegally, how can you be totally sure of your numbers? Well, uh, we're not totally sure. We we think we've got a fairly narrow range on it. But the other data that we're putting in this report is actually a good check on it because we have data from Mexico and uh, we can put a fairly narrow range on how many Mexicans age 25 to 29 there are in the two countries combined because we can look back and see how many 
Mexicans were born 25 to 29 years ago. So this triangulation of the U.S. data against the Mexican data mm. uh, gives us some, some reasonable confidence that the numbers can't be very much larger. You know, if I'm not mistaken, Mexican birth rates started to fall dramatically in the 1990s. What do you think is the bigger, longer-term demographic picture of Mexicans coming to the U.S.? Is there any way oh, that you can model that? Yeah, it goes back even further. In 1970, the fertility rate in Mexico was almost seven children per woman. By 2000, it had dropped to 2.4 children per woman, and it's it's been at about that level ever since. Mm. Uh, uh, and demographers aren't very good at, at a lot of things, but projecting these age groups out 10 years is, is within our capacity. <laughs> well, <let's... laughs> And so, so I think, you know, even if things change, the U.S. economy came back, there's not as many Mexicans to migrate to the U.S. as there was 20 years ago. I know you said you weren't totally surprised by the findings, but but as we pointed out earlier, I mean, this means the end of the largest and most sustained immigration trend in American history. What do you think is significant about that alone? In, in a way, it is surprising that the data we had until about a year or two ago didn't show the big return flows. So uh, this does seem to mark the beginning of a, of a new migration regime. We'll have to see how it plays out once the U.S. economy gets better. But this concentrated flow of Mexicans does seem to be changing. How do you think your findings are going to kind of fold into the uh, presidential campaign this year? Um, that That's a very interesting question. From From my perspective as a data analyst, I find that a lot of times the data and the information that we've put out doesn't enter into the debate as fully as one would hope it would. So I don't know. Uh, a lot of people's position on immigration and uh, immigration reform uh, doesn't seem to be uh, influenced heavily by data. The Supreme Court is going to be uh, hearing arguments tomorrow about Arizona's immigration law. I'm wondering, you know, do potential immigrants discuss the tougher attitude to enforcement here in the United States and the increase in deportations? Oh, I, I, I think so. We, we've got some data from some of our uh, national survey of Latinos that finds uh, Latinos tend to think life has gotten harder for Latinos. They concerned about the lack of reforms in the immigration area. You know, undoubtedly, the state and local laws that are designed to make life difficult for migrants is making life difficult for them. And a, a very significant percentage of the Latino population worries about deportations affecting themselves and their families and friends. Jeff Passell, a senior demographer with the Pew Hispanic Center and one of the authors on the new report on Mexican migration. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Even if immigration has slowed, there are still millions of Spanish-speaking immigrants living in the United States. There are also immigrants who speak dozens of other languages here. If any of them come into contact with the judicial system, they have the right to a court interpreter. That's federal law. But courts across the country have been cutting wages for interpreters, and now, in Nevada, some interpreters are refusing to work for the courts. The world's Jason Margolis has a story. Alvaro de Gives Mas is a certified court interpreter in Reno. He was working on an appeals case two years ago. 
The defendant, who only spoke Spanish, had already served seven years in prison. He told Tejibes Mas that he never admitted to certain things in the original court case. The guy was so insistent that I looked at him and said, well, I'm looking here at the transcript. It says so-and-so. I mean, I back-translated it to him in, in this case, in Spanish, of course. And the guy said, no, I never said that. According to the defendant, the translator had made a mistake in a pre-trial testimony. Tejives Mas went back and looked at a video of the original trial and saw that this alleged mistake was read aloud in court. According to the defendant, the translator confused one word. This guy isn't saying, yes, I did it. He said, if I did it. The Spanish word si can mean yes or if. The defendant claims he said, if I did it. But the jury heard, yes, I did it. The translator wasn't certified by the state of Nevada. Tejives Mas is convinced that a more qualified court translator would not have made that mistake, and the man might not have been sent to prison. Seven years, seven years of prison. This is real stuff. This is real people that get really in deep, deep trouble. There are many stories from across the country where underqualified translators and interpreters made crucial mistakes in court. It can also tilt in favor of the defendant. Many cases have been dismissed, delayed, or retried due to interpreting problems. By federal law, people appearing in court have a right to a qualified interpreter, explains Natalie Kelly. She's the chief research officer at Common Sense Advisory, a company in Lowell, Massachusetts, focused on language services. So if an individual speaks another language and they're not provided with services in that language, either directly or through an interpreter, it means that their rights have been violated. The question is, what constitutes a violation? Most state courts do attempt to locate certified interpreters, but they also rely on non-certified interpreters who tend to be less expensive. Judy Jenner, a certified court interpreter in Las Vegas, says court interpreters aren't simply bilingual speakers. They're professionals who interpret tricky legalese. You have a lot of knowledge about the system, about what the process is like, what the papers are called. I mean, somebody could be giving you a guilty plea agreement that's 15 pages, and you're sitting in a cell with somebody, and they tell you, interpret this for this defendant. He's about to sign his guilty plea agreement, and you better know what all of this means. Up in Reno, where Alvaro de Jives Mas lives, the Washoe County Courts cut wages for interpreters by a third. He no longer works for the county. Down in Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, the courts also cut interpreter pay by 28 percent. People like Judy Jenner are now paid $36 an hour. Which, you know, for people who have gone through this long process and have all these years of experience, it's just hardly worth it. $36 an hour might seem like a pretty good rate, especially in this economy. But Jenner points out interpreters only get called when they're needed and generally don't work 40-hour weeks or have benefits. She says certified interpreters have to pass a rigorous exam. Most people in Nevada who take it fail. Jenner is one of a handful of interpreters who are refusing to sign the new contract with Clark County. She's working for private clients who pay considerably more. Other interpreters are threatening to cut back their hours with Nevada courts. That's very concerning to the public defender's office. Darren Richards is the assistant public defender in Clark County. He estimates that 35 percent of the people the county defends are non-native English speakers. The vast majority of those speak Spanish. He says fewer interpreters could drag down the whole system. 
we'd have cases languishing. We'd have problems with losing witnesses and other problems that that happen when cases languish. We'd have court calendars that are unnecessarily long as we wait for interpreters to be present. Across the country, court budgets have been cut during the economic downturn. Natalie Kelly says short-term savings can result in costs in the long run. When a mistake is made in court, and let's assume that an incompetent interpreter is used, that mistake may later be discovered through the transcription of the proceedings, and they might have to go back and something might be challenged, and then basically taxpayers end up paying more money in the long run because of those mistakes. So not having competent interpreters up front can actually cost more money down the line. Philip Cohn, the Clark County public defender, agrees with that. This is Las Vegas. We have a lot of victims who come from somewhere else. So they've flown a witness all the way out from Omaha only to find out that that witness needs a certain interpreter or the defendant needs an interpreter and we can't go forward. And so that delay can cost the county a great deal of money. But places like Clark County, Nevada, are running desperately short of money now. Across the board, the county has cut jobs and wages. The pain is not limited to certified interpreters and the people who rely on them. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. Tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court will referee another major clash between the Obama administration and the states. This time, it's over Arizona's crackdown on illegal immigrants. The case focuses on whether states can adopt their own immigration rules or whether that's the exclusive domain of the federal government. There are now some 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. Arizona was the first of a half dozen states to enact laws intended to drive illegal immigrants out, and it's working to a point. Some immigrants have left, but many have found workarounds to the new laws, including a university established in Phoenix by an Indian tribe. One of the girls actually started crying because she was a senior and she was like, I'm so glad you came because up to this day, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was thinking about moving to California, New Mexico, or even going back to Mexico. And she's like, I didn't know that this was happening. Undocumented immigrants are very publicly flouting the law in Arizona. We'll hear that story tomorrow on The World. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It seems to be the race without a checkered flag. It just keeps going. Bahrain is still reeling from all the unrest surrounding its Formula One Grand Prix over the weekend. The race went ahead despite days of demonstrations and clashes between protesters and police. Yesterday, there were more clashes after the funeral of one man who was killed in the turmoil. Bahraini authorities had hoped the Grand Prix would show that all was well in the country. Instead, it highlighted the continuing tensions there over human rights and demands for political reform. Correspondent Jonathan Miller of Britain's Channel 4 TV was in Bahrain covering the unrest. He was arrested with other members of the Channel 4 crew, their driver, and a Bahraini human rights activist. Miller and his crew were eventually deported. They're now back in London. So, Jonathan, what were you doing right before your arrest? We'd gone out to one of the Shia Muslim villages, and uh, these people have been the ones primarily demanding more democracy and protesting on the streets. Where I was was in one of these villages, 
and um, I was uh, filming a, a small sort of flash mob demonstration, and we were aware all the time that we were filming there of a police helicopter above us. Uh, but we suddenly realized that this helicopter had clocked us uh, filming, and it came very low and started uh, circling just above us. So we retreated back to our car, and then what ensued was, quite frankly, um, able to compare with the excitement of the Grand Prix itself. We had a full-on helicopter car chase until eventually we were caught by riot police who surrounded our car when we ran out of road. But it was a very dramatic chase for about 10 or 15 minutes. Was the Bahraini human rights activist, Allah al-Shahabi, uh, with you at the time of your arrest? Were you with her at the time? Yes, she was. I mean, she, we'd, we'd hitched up with her a couple of times during the day. Um, she had decided, along with our driver, that uh, it was not worth getting caught. Mm. Uh, we, too, were in the country without accreditation. Um, and uh, what confronted me when I got there was a country which is not unified, as the government would like have you believe, but deeply divided along sectarian lines primarily between Sunni and Shia Muslim. And uh, many, many people in that country are extremely unhappy at what we all in the West would consider rather basic democratic rights. What happened while you were in custody, Jonathan? Um, we had, uh, the, the, my crew, my cameraman, producer, and myself refused to be taken separately from our Bahraini uh, friends uh, to the police station because Bahrain has a very, very bad record in terms of human rights. In the end, after about an hour, we were taken to the police station, and we were actually separated. Um, uh, Dr. Allah was taken off and interviewed by, uh, in the women's police section, and Ali, the driver, uh, was taken off separately. Now, we continued, we continued to demand uh, the right to see him, and eventually he was brought to us and showed us his arms, which had been lacerated. They'd been cut. But I wasn't allowed to speak to him, and I, and I, and I asked to do so. He wasn't allowed to speak to me either. He was taken, he was presented to me, and then he, the, then, then he was taken away again. But just before we left, we did hear that Ali, the driver, and Dr. Allah had themselves both been released. The eyes of the world were watching Bahrain. It had been trying to convince the world that it was... It had changed, that things were normal. We clearly saw that it wasn't, but by holding them to account, by saying, look, the world is watching, I think they were aware that nothing could happen to those two Bahrainis that we were with. Have you spoken with Dr. Shabahi since uh, you've gotten back to London? I haven't directly spoken to her. Uh, colleagues of mine have, mine have I, I think, today, um, but I have been in direct contact with her by other means, um, as I have with Ali. Uh, they assure me that they're okay. Um, you know, one of the things that I feel looking back on it now is, you know, that the, the, the Grand Prix was a big event. Uh, you know, the, the demonstrations appeared to be time to coincide with that, the three days of rage that the activists had called. Mm. But the Grand Prix is gone now. Uh, the media spotlight's moved on. We've, we've been thrown out. Others are leaving. But as you pointed out, the struggle uh, by, by the... Uh, people for their basic democratic rights against a fairly repressive regime there will continue. Correspondent Jonathan Miller of Channel 4 TV in London, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Marco. What's that saying about how it's the little things that make life worthwhile? Well, sometimes it's the little things in life that can drive us crazy, too. Just ask journalist Miriam Elder about her dry cleaning. It takes forever. It's insanely expensive. And you just leave in a bad mood because you don't even understand what you've been doing for the past hour of your life. Miriam Elder is based in Moscow for Britain's Guardian newspaper. And she wrote an article about the challenge she faced trying to get five sweaters dry cleaned in Russia's capital. 
Well, first you have to find the dry cleaner, which is inevitably hidden in some shop or in some courtyard. You find the dry cleaner. There's somebody waiting there. You wait at least 15, 20 minutes until they're done with the previous customer. Uh, And then you start laying your clothes out on the table. And immediately what happens is uh, the woman behind the counter takes a huge stack of papers out with a thousand different boxes that can be checked. And she starts examining your clothes with the diligence of a doctor devoted to internal medicine. So Mm -hmm. every single piece of thread, (laughs) every single button, every single catch, every single anything is just examined with the utmost care. Normally, this would be fine, but it takes forever. I don't know, eventually 45 minutes later, I kind of enter a daze usually, but 45 minutes later, roughly, you have handed in your dry cleaning and half your salary. Right. Uh, giving new sense uh, to the phrase, uh, taken to the cleaners. And uh, to make things worse, uh, a recent visit, you lost your ticket. That's just one of the Ten Commandments in any dry cleaning place. So how does that play out in Russia? I immediately kicked myself when I knew that I had lost it. I mean, this is something you just can't do. The thing is, you know, you have a you have a, a president here and a leadership here that's constantly talking about modernizing the economy and modernizing society. But at the end of the day, most people are dealing with handwritten notes and stuff. So she couldn't just look it up in the computer and say, oh, Miriam, you know, I've seen you before and here's your name and I'm going to give you your clothes. Immediately, she demands my passport and begins writing down like every page of my passport, the stamps, the registrations. And um, I then have to sit there and basically compose an essay about the clothes that I had handed in. It was the busiest time ever in Russia. We'd had presidential elections. We'd had uh, protests. I was working like crazy. I could barely remember what I ate for breakfast let alone what I'd handed in to dry clean uh, a week prior. Now, you've had 200 comments at the Guardian newspaper website uh, in in regards to your story about dry cleaning in Moscow. A lot of people saying that uh, you're giving Russia a bad name. How do you respond? Some people take it really personally as if I'm out there to attack Russia. It has nothing to do with that. This is something that I live through over and over and over again. It was almost a cathartic experience to write it out. And is it just dry cleaning? I mean, where else does this kind of bureaucratic existential nightmare play out? Uh, The right way to phrase that question would be, where does it not play out? It really, (laughs) it's absolutely everywhere. I mean, try buying something in the supermarket and it's spoiled and you want to return it. It's just not even worth the effort. To get a working permit here, you have to do everything from an AIDS test, which I guess a lot of countries require, to like a leprosy test. I mean, six different examinations, six different stamps. It just, it's endless. It's absolutely endless. Now, Miriam, uh, your uh, dirty little secret, shall we say, (laughs) literally, is that uh, you don't uh, get your clothes dry cleaned in Moscow anymore, do you? I don't. I've stopped. And uh, every time I go back home to the States, I have a relatively uh, empty suitcase. It's just filled with dry cleaning and uh, (laughs) I bring it all home. I'm not the only one that does this. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot faster and it takes all of five minutes. Miriam, thanks a lot. Thank you. Miriam Elder is a Moscow-based journalist with London's Guardian newspaper. There is a link to her story on our website, theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, French President Nicolas Sarkozy has lobbied hard for nuclear power. That's driving anti-nuclear activists to support his socialist opponent in the upcoming election. If the left-wing party wins, then a debate will start on the first closure on a nuclear power plant, and it will be the first time in France. 
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Britain's long, hard look at the ethics of its media is far from over. Today in London, the focus was on James Murdoch and his relationships with politicians. James is the son of media mogul Rupert Murdoch, whose news corporation owns the Wall Street Journal and Fox, among many other news outlets. In Britain, the Murdochs have been under constant scrutiny ever since the infamous phone hacking scandal that forced the closure of their news of the world tabloid. The BBC's Rob Watson has been covering today's events at the Levison Inquiry, a judge-led investigation set up last year in response to that scandal. Rob, some of our listeners may remember that last summer Rupert Murdoch and his son James appeared before a British parliamentary committee. Uh, Rupert famously said that day was his most humble This week, the Murdochs aren't facing members of parliament, but they are facing a judge as part of another inquiry. Explain what's happening now and why it matters. Yes, it's something of a confusing picture. There's so much going on. But essentially what you've had is there's been a a parliamentary investigation by a committee of MPs. There are also a number of police investigations. And then if you like, underlying it all is this much broader inquiry by Justice Leveson. And essentially that's looking into the broader issue of Britain's tabloid press, Britain's newspapers, their culture, their ethics, their practices, and whether anything needs to be done differently as to how they're regulated. And what's happened is that the inquiry has now moved on to the section where it wants to look at the relationships between prominent, powerful media owners like the Murdochs and politicians, and to look at such issues as well for backing politicians or political parties in their newspapers, did they expect some kind of favours in return from the politicians? Did they expect to have influence on government? So that's the stage we're at. And clearly a very sensitive stage, a very difficult stage, not just for the Murdochs, of course, but for British politicians. Mm. So today, Rob, what were the specific allegations or concerns about James Murdoch's conduct that the inquiry is trying to, was trying to probe? Well, of course, there was a section that was about the phone hacking scandal that, of course, sparked all this off in the first place. And James Murdoch repeated the defense that he'd made before to the MPs, which was essentially to say that when he came to take over his father's British newspapers, he had received assurances at the time that phone hacking was a a one-off thing. It was something that had happened in the past and that there wasn't some huge bomb waiting to explode. And he continued to insist that that had always been his view, that he hadn't known how extensive it was and that he was surprised and as shocked as the rest of us when it happened. But then the inquiry moved on to this issue of the relationship between press owners like the Murdochs and the government. And there was a particular focus on on one issue, and that is the efforts by News Corporation to have a full takeover of a British pay-per-view television channel known as B-Sky-B. And there was a great deal of focus on the huge amount of contact that the Murdoch empire had had with the office of one government minister, a man called Jeremy Hunt. He's in charge of culture and media over this bid. And the level of that contact has already provoked some opposition MPs to start calling for the government minister's head. So I think that gives you a a flavour of what's been happening. 
Finally, Rob, Rupert Murdoch will be on the stand tomorrow. Uh, I can imagine it's a much-anticipated appearance, but are you expecting any real revelations? Well, it certainly is much-anticipated, and I think people are expecting a a feisty performance from Rupert Murdoch. He certainly put in a, a pretty feisty performance when he appeared before MPs. I think there is huge interest. Of course, no one knows what he's going to say, because on this issue of the proprietor's, newspaper owner's relationship with the politicians, of course, in, in Rupert Murdoch's case rather than his son's, that is a relationship that goes back an awful long way. Rupert Murdoch has been a, a media giant in this country for 30, 40, 50 years, and so the very level and extent of his contacts could be a fascinating area to explore should he decide to tell all sorts of anecdotes. The BBC's Rob Watson has been covering the Levison inquiry. He joined us from London. Rob, thank you. Thank you, Marco. In France, the politicians are focused on the next round of presidential voting on May 6. Socialist candidate Francois Hollande won the first round. He's hoping to win again in a face-off with the embattled incumbent Nicolas Sarkozy. The two are competing for the support of voters deeply concerned about the economy and immigration. But there's another issue this year that's new to French presidential politics, nuclear power. France gets roughly three-quarters of its electricity from nuclear, and support for the technology has always been strong there. But that's starting to change, as Liam Moriarty reports. Behind this fence, outside the small town of Flamenville, here on the Normandy coast, stands a growing mountain of concrete and steel. This is the worksite of the country's first new-generation nuclear power plant, known as the European Pressurized Reactor. Electricité de France, the government-owned utility company that's building this reactor, declined to be interviewed. But it's clear that France's powerful nuclear establishment is betting heavily on this new design. An economically competitive reactor combining enhanced safety and operating conditions with greater environmental protection, the EPR will provide benefits of the most recent and proven nuclear technologies. This 2005 promotional video by Areva, the government-owned nuclear services company that designed the EPR, touts the so-called third-generation reactor as safer, more fuel-efficient, and more economical to operate. They hope it'll not only maintain nuclear power's strong dominance in France, but also be the flagship technology that France exports throughout the world. But the reality of the EPR has so far been less impressive. The Flamanville plant is four years behind schedule and nearly $4 billion over budget. And another EPR that Areva is building in Finland has also been plagued with delays and huge cost overruns. Yes, we have gone through some growing pains. Uh, We are learning from that. Areva executive Tariq Choho concedes the EPR has had a less than auspicious debut. Choho says building a new design for the first time, you're going to run into some kinks. But he says when the plants in Finland and Flamanville finally go online... People will be so uh, excited about this uh, new uh, generation of a reactor uh, starting that uh, you know, maybe some of these pains will be forgotten. <laughs> a year or so ago, Choho may have been right. France gets a bigger share of its electricity from nuclear power than any other country. And the French public used to consistently support nuclear technology. But since Fukushima, many here are having second thoughts. Clearly what Fukushima changed in France is the fact that now people know about nuclear energy. Sophia Magnoni is a campaigner for Greenpeace France. She says the accident in Japan, plus the upcoming French presidential election, has triggered a national debate. A political debate, but also a technical debate, which gave a lot of information to the people which they didn't have before. 
Recent polls have found that more than 80% of French voters object to building new nuclear plants, and nearly two-thirds support phasing out existing plants. Those poll numbers may have played a role in the decision by France's opposition socialists to support a plan by the smaller Green Party to close almost half of the country's 58 nukes by 2025. Socialist presidential candidate François Hollande told France 2 TV that he doesn't want to eliminate nuclear power, but... I'm for the diversification of energy sources to produce electricity. I'm focused over 15 to 20 years on reducing the share of nuclear power in the electrical supply from 75 to 50 percent. Many Greens say that doesn't go far enough. But just the fact that a leading presidential candidate is talking about cutting back on nuclear power is a big change here. Still, electricity analyst Manuel Barateau at the International Energy Agency in Paris doesn't expect France to follow the lead of some of its neighbors and go nuclear-free anytime soon. Barateau says a recent French government report calculated that phasing out nuclear would cost more, create energy instability, and boost greenhouse gas emissions. The report's main conclusion? The optimal trajectory is to operate the existing fleet of reactors until the end of the technical and economic life. For his part, current French President Nicolas Sarkozy wants to extend the life of those plants from 40 years to 60, way longer than any commercial nuclear plant has ever run. But Yves Marignac has a very different vision. It is possible for France to shift to a fully sustainable, renewable-based energy system by 2050. Marignac is with the Negawatt Institute. A Negawatt is a megawatt of electricity that can be saved through conservation. Marignac says the government's big energy report pays scant attention to the huge potential for reducing energy demand. Two-thirds of the answers are on the demand side, mostly energy efficiency, not only in electricity but also in transport, in houses, heating systems. Of course, such a transition would be hugely expensive. But Marignac points out that the alternative, extending the nation's nuclear fleet for 20 years, is itself expected to cost upwards of $70 billion. In a country so deeply invested in nuclear power, it's likely that any dramatic shift won't come soon, if at all. But Greenpeace's Sofia Magnoni says a lot could hinge on the upcoming election. If it's uh, Sarkozy who is re-elected, I will say it will be very difficult to have an anti-nuclear movement in France. If the left-wing party wins, then a debate will start on the first closure on a nuclear power plant, and it will be the first time in France. For The World, I'm Liam Moriarty, Paris. A verdict is expected this week in the war crimes trial of Charles Taylor. Taylor was the warlord turned president of Liberia, but he's accused of sponsoring rebels who committed atrocities in the war in neighboring Sierra Leone. Charles Taylor's trial at a U.N.-backed war crimes court in The Hague has attracted international attention, but nowhere will the verdict be more closely watched than in Sierra Leone, where tens of thousands were killed or mutilated. Reporter Bonnie Allen recently met with some survivors in the capital, Freetown, and a warning here, Bonnie's story includes graphic descriptions. This was the road I used. I and my family, we went up there. In a small yellow taxi in Freetown, Edward Conte lifts his left arm, amputated just below the elbow, to gesture up the road. He's up there, they amputated my hand. 
It was 1999. A rebel group called the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, had joined forces with a new military junta to invade the city, murdering and mutilating anyone in their path. Like many, Conte was hiding with his family. There was no food, no water. So you're in this house with your nine children? Yes. At that time, for three days, no food? No food. Desperate, Conte ventured out in search of something to feed his family. A rebel soldier found him and chopped off his arm with an axe. But Conte blames a man who never even stepped foot in Sierra Leone, Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia. Conte calls Taylor the godfather of the war. Why? Because he was the one sponsoring them. Taylor is accused of backing and arming the rebels in Sierra Leone, sending them cash and guns in return for diamonds. The special court for Sierra Leone moved Taylor's trial to The Hague out of fear it could destabilize the West African region. While it's clear that thousands of people were killed and maimed and children were used as soldiers and sex slaves, proving that Taylor was responsible is another matter. At a small cafeteria in Freetown, I sit down with Eldred Collins, a founding member of the rebel group, the RUF. He was arrested and imprisoned for 16 months, but never charged. Collins says the leaders of the RUF died before they could stand trial. He insists Charles Taylor is just a scapegoat. He did not take any active part. Charles was not here. He was uh, in his own country. They never did enter. But they're trying to establish a link, a chain of command, to suggest that he in some way had authority. He never gave instructions to us, no. But that doesn't convince people like Edward Conte. As I know, I still on judgment. Conte, who's president of the Amputee and War Wounded Association, sits down under a mango tree on the outskirts of Freetown to visit with men who had both their hands chopped off. Among them is Mohammed Sise, who testified at the Taylor trial. He described how RUF fighters hacked off his limbs. Long sleeve or short sleeve? They asked him long sleeves or short sleeves to determine where on his arms they should swing the machete. Cisse says he'll be glued to the radio on Thursday hoping for a guilty verdict for Taylor. He would do everything. He was able to do everything, he says. He was able to give them guns. He was able to take diamonds. For his part, Edward Conte plans to be in The Hague to witness the verdict in person. Charles Taylor should be locked in solitary confinement, says Conte, where he cannot breathe the free air that we breathe for the rest of his life. For The World, I'm Bonnie Allen, Freetown, Sierra Leone. For today's GeoQuiz, a smoking mountain. We want you to name a nearly 18,000-foot volcano about 35 miles outside Mexico City. Its name means Smoking Mountain in the indigenous Nahuatl language, and it's living up to that name. The volcano's been rumbling and sending up clouds of ash and steam in recent days. Mexican authorities have raised the alert to level 5 on a 7-point scale. That's got locals on edge. One resident said, we close our eyes, but we don't sleep much. 
More than a half a million people live in the volcano's shadow, and as many as 25 million live within a 60-mile radius. We'll hear more on how residents are preparing for a possible evacuation when we come back with the answer in just a minute. Some of our geotexting game players obviously know their volcanoes. Maryland in Akron, Ohio, Lupe in Hazard, California, and Dino in Miami, Florida. They all texted us the right answer. You can get a mention by playing next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Mexico's most famous volcano has been rumbling and smoking lately. Authorities haven't yet called for an evacuation, but there are serious warnings. And the more than half a million residents who live near this volcano are getting ready for a possible evacuation. Reporter Frank Contreras has been out speaking with people in the volcano zone. Frank, you're a champion of our GeoQuiz, having answered it on many occasions. Can you name this volcano for us? Absolutely, Marco. It's the famous Popocatépetl volcano just outside of Mexico City. It's a Nahuatl word, which means the smoking mountain. Popocatépetl. Describe El Popo for us, Frank. How actively is it showing off right now? Well, this is one of the world's largest, most active volcanoes, and it's considered a a pretty dangerous volcano lately because we're starting to see a lava dome building up. Experts say there's a massive amount of red-hot lava moving to the surface. And pretty much every day and night now, in the last few days, you could see large chunks of smoldering rock coming out of the volcano and smoke basically billowing out, ashes raining down on villagers living around the area. Right, and ash clouds disrupt flights. Has there been any discussion yet about how that might affect flights in and out of Mexico City? Well, at the major airport here, the Benito Juarez Airport here, officials say that there have been one or two flights that have been delayed because ash was filling the sky in and around the area, and that is a flight path. And so there were a number of flights that were delayed and had to circle around the giant metropolitan area of Mexico City. So one or two flights, yes, but in general, Things are operating smoothly. Now, authorities have said that El Popo is at a yellow stage three alert. How are people near the volcano reacting? Have you come across anyone who's ready to leave? Well, in recent days, I went to the volcano itself, four or five miles distant from the volcano crater. And the people I spoke with were relatively calm, Marco. They've, over the years, they've seen this sort of activity take place. In 2000, of course, you remember that was a major eruption that took place. And some of those villagers were evacuated at that point. But they all remember that. And they say right now we're still willing to stay put. We don't want to lose our lands. And so people are going to ride this one out at this stage, Marco, even though red hot lava is coming out of the volcano as we speak. Yeah, I read a quote from somebody in a nearby town to El Popo who said, we close our eyes, but we don't sleep much at night. It's got to be really anxiety provoking. Oh, absolutely. There are massive blasts that are taking place around the clock. Uh, Little children were telling me just the other day that around two or three in the morning, they were woken up by a massive sound of of one of the expulsions, um, red-hot rocks coming out of the top, and they could hear sort of a rumbling strong enough to wake children up right in the middle of the night. You know, given the unpredictability and how sudden and violent a volcano eruption can be, can you ever really prepare for one? Experts say no. The latest scientific techniques are being used right now to monitor every movement the volcano is making. Uh, satellites are being used to check whether or not the sides of the cone are expanding ever so slightly. But still, with all of that major technology, even with help from the United States, there's no way of telling at any given instant when a major eruption could take place. And so people are standing by. You see people with suitcases packed. But in general, 
They're sort of waiting to see if this will pass. Reporter Frank Contreras near Popocatépetl, the answer to our geo-quiz. Frank, thank you for the answer, and thanks for the interview. Appreciate it. Thank you, Marco. Take care. Finally today, we don't hear much musically from Austria, but the Austrian duo Atwinger combines the fast-paced sound of traditional accordion with dance-friendly backbeats. They recently made their U.S. debut, and the world's Alex Galifant checked them out. Atwenger's publicists call their music Austrian Alpine Quirkabilly, also Turbo Polka, also Feral Polka. Marcus Binder doesn't like those terms. He prefers to think about the music in a different way. He says it's more like the mythical American road trip. It's like to be on, on a trip on a highway. That's like we are. Binder sings and plays drums. The other half of Adwenger is Hans-Peter Faulkner. He plays accordion. And the two of them did take an American road trip once, from Texas to Louisiana. Binder thinks that experience still informs the band's musical life. We can get off the highway and, and drive there and drive there, but we have our own language, our material, our experiences with us in the car, and this vehicle is moving, it's always moving. And uh, on, on the sign, it's always a twinger. Binder and Faulkner formed Atwenge in 1990. They came across the name in a song they heard. It featured a character called Atwenge, and they liked the sound of it. Binder thinks using a simple Austrian name like that gives them the freedom to do anything. Because, uh, you know, if you... If you call yourself, I don't know, suicidal tendencies, you, you, <laughs> you won't play sweet songs and things like that. Okay, so suicidal tendencies do have some sweet songs, but let's not nitpick. Anyway, Binder did some research into the name Atwenga. At, A-T-T, it means water, and Wang, it means swampy area. So the name is water in a swampy area. Atwenger has one foot planted in Austrian folk music and another sunk deep in the America of Chuck Berry, Elvis and Bill Withers. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone on the One of their most popular videos online is for this song, Shaking My Brain. A couple of years after writing it, Binder realized he'd been inspired by Jerry Lee Lewis and Great Balls of Fire. He says, uh, he's shaking my nerves and rattling my brain. And what, what came out is shaking my brain. What we are doing as Artwinger is to fill uh, the pot, the Artwinger pot, with ingredients that, that are funky, that, that make a funky music. P- play that funky music, Austrian boys. What do, you, what do you mean by that? As in, play that funky music, white boy. 
White boy? Play that funky music, white boy? Play that funky music, white boy. So you think that's the song for Atwinger? That this is. If you change white for Austrian. Yeah, that's very good. Spiel mir die funk Musik bitte. Spiel mir die funk Musik. Alex Galafant für die Welt. Los, los geht, los durchzieh und los rein für Schnee. Mir rennt da hier und Santa Bert ist los, Marin, das geht vorbei. That was brilliant. Want to see Atwinger perform? Sparkly gold suits and all. We have their video for Shaking My Brain at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Take it easy. <laughs> The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.